0: Welcome to Soccer Morning, backheel.com, World Soccer Talk. I just set myself up for failure here this morning. That's what you do when you're trying to get new music on the program. And we had a technical glitch to start the show. I'm just throwing stuff at Trevor. He has no idea what's going on. (laughs) Welcome into the Wednesday edition of the program again, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Very excited to be here on a Wednesday. We've got an excellent program for you. A little Champions League review with Leander Sherlockins coming up in a couple of minutes. And then the president of Indy 11 NASL Club looking to build a new stadium there in Indianapolis. Peter Wilt will join us at 1030. We'll talk to Peter about his preparations, his team's preparations for the season, but also, again, about that stadium effort there in Indianapolis, getting things together. I believe there's a vote coming up on the uh, House, in the House of Indiana's legislature. How does that work? There's two bicameral, Yeah. That's, what, that's how that works. I, I took civics when I was a kid. I tried. There was some learning involved. Speaking of learning, we learned some things yesterday in the UEFA Champions League. Let's get into those headlines. Number one, Barcelona once again taking down Manchester City in Manchester at the Etihad. 2-1, both goals by Luis Suarez. And for whatever reason, Manchester City just can't get the, out of their own way when it comes to Barcelona. Was that Barcelona's best? Maybe not, but it certainly was good enough to beat Manchester City. And they didn't have Yaya Torre. We'll talk to Leander about how much of an issue that was for Man City. They did struggle a bit while he was away on African Cup of Nations duty. They came back again last night in, in Manchester. And now they have to go back to Barcelona down a goal with, uh, Manche- with Barcelona Excuse me, holding a, a, a tiebreaker with those two away goals. Difficult thing to overturn for Manuel Pellegrini and company. Manuel Pellegrini in the press after the game talking about his tactics. He said they were the right ones. Were they? Lots of open questions there about Manchester City. Is Again, the thing that will make Manchester City one of the world's biggest clubs is getting over that Champions League hump, and they haven't been able to do it. You win all the Premier League titles you want. You're just a big club in England. You got to go win Europe, or you got to go get to the final, or you got to get at least to the semis. The other Champions League match yesterday, Juventus beat Dortmund two one, there at home in Italy. Goals, uh, a goal from Carlos Tevez. A lot of mistakes in this game, a lot of simple mistakes. Marco Royce pounced on a simple mistake from Juventus to score the goal for Dortmund. What what is it about this stage? First of all, that makes Dortmund better than they are in the league, and, and I don't know. You could argue whether or not they were better yesterday. They certainly gave Juventus enough trouble that they go back now to the West believing that they have a chance to overturn that deficit. And they have it away goal in their pocket. Good for them. Continuing that Champions League campaign while they claw and scratch and do everything they can to get points in the in the league to climb out of the relegation zone. They're not in the relegation zone at the moment in fact we may we may want to go ahead and make that proclamation how likely is it that Dortmund's going to fall back into the relegation zone at any point this season they started they've started to get it together a little bit concacaf champions league because we do do that over here as well in north america two matches last night Herediano scores a draw into gusalpa against olympia that was a great game back and forth very chaotic, very CONCACAF. Yeah, Olympia's crowd was fantastic. Fantastic crowd down there in Honduras. But a, a, again, a big draw for Herediano. 1-1, the final in that match. In in uh, Pachuca, Duca scored twice to give Montreal a 2-0 lead over the Mexican side, only to see that lead slip away, because this is the way of MLS teams in Mexico. You go down there, maybe you play well for a half, Maybe you get a goal lead, but it's never safe. Montreal gave up that lead. Now, they go back to Montreal with a reasonable shot, but I think most people will have Pachuca favored by a pretty considerable margin in the second leg of that CONCACAF Champions League matchup. If you were wondering whether or not FIFA was intending to compensate especially European clubs because of the 2022 World Cup being moved to winter, you can put that thought out of your head. Jerome Valkyrie is out there talking about this, saying no chance. No chance. His direct quote, FIFA did what we had to do. Now, this is related to, actually, let me, let me take the context. Let me get the correct context here. That actually related to the TV rights that were handed to Telemundo and Fox for the 2026 World Cup as a hedge against a lawsuit over the 2022 World Cup. Again, the quote is that they did what they had to do and that no laws were breached. Okay. Is it fair? There's a difference between fair and legal. It wasn't fair. Maybe it was legal. You have a no-bid situation on these television rights. ESPN, none too happy about it. You imagine there might have been some other bidders involved. And they just handed those rights to Fox and Telemundo. We, we talked about this. And, and again, clearly it was about 2022. And I, talked to, uh, I told you yesterday that there's research out there that says as many as 50 leagues around the world could be impacted. I read a, a piece, a, a list, a list, a fun little list, a GQ yesterday. And I don't want to call out the author, and I don't remember his name. And he has listed ten reasons why the World Cup in the winter of twenty twenty two is a big deal. And number two was because it because of MLS. That it might actually benefit MLS. Now I don't know if this particular author doesn't understand that there are playoffs and a championship game that happened in November and December of the calendar. Uh, or he was just ignoring them because he said, Oh, MLS could be could stand a benefit because their league ends in October. know, the regular season. Inns towards the end of October. There's a lot more soccer to be played after that to determine a champion. This is actually a big problem for MLS. This is a, probably another reason for Trevor Hayward to advocate for for MLS to just uh, <laughs> switch schedules. Now, of course, that would be very difficult. We we know that already. Switching schedules to a winter. It's, it's 12 degrees outside right now where I am. I know it's February. Could you just DC United go on a long road trip? Montreal going a long road. Everybody goes on a long road trip. Maybe that's the deal. Maybe don't play games there. Then says Trevor. Yes, that's simple. That's absolutely simple. <laughs> Lots of things to consider, obviously. All right. Hope Solo has done an interview with uh, ABC News in uh, the aftermath of her suspension from the U.S. Women's National Team now. She is returning to the national team after serving that that suspension. She's done done her time. I mean, I had to say it that way, but she served the suspension as laid down by U.S. soccer. She has been exonerated. Those charges have been dropped when it came to the domestic violence charge. She is one of the more marketable marketable names in the U.S. women's national team so any questions of whether or not she should be doing things like this I think are moot now yeah maybe it's not good that Hope Solo is such a star for the U.S. women's national team you have to push her despite her problems despite this suspension despite Jeremy Stevens driving the U.S. soccer van drunk which she says she regrets obviously maybe it's not great that she's out front but you're pushing that team. You're trying to get some attention ahead of the World Cup this summer. Gotta get it. And let's not have a double standard about what Ho- So Polo, So So Polo, Hope Solo did, <laughs> and what uh, what male athletes do on a regular basis. And then they sit in front of a camera and they apologize, or they talk about their demons. Or they they talk about their regrets, and they're still marketable. Kobe Bryant's still getting ad dollars. People, he did something, as far as I could tell, way way worse or at least was charged with something way, way worse than anything Hope Solo has ever done. Also down in South Florida, Ronaldo has announced that he intends to make his return to the field for the Fort Lauderdale Strikers come playoff time. So that'll be fun, I guess. That'll be... I, I'm, I'm completely against this. It seems like a stunt. It seems like something you shouldn't be doing. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's grab Leander Sherlockin's talk a little Champions League, Champions League with our friend Leander. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com.
1: Welcome
2: back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis.
0: Here we go back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. I am uh, I like throwing new stuff at Trevor. He has no idea what I'm doing with this music this morning. Leander Schellackis is on the line with me now. You can follow him on Twitter, at Leander Alphabet. He writes in many, many places for anyone that will pay him, I imagine. Leander, how are you, sir?
3: I'm well, Jason. I'm actually enjoying the music.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's a little different. I'm trying to throw it together at the last minute. That's the part that's uh, throwing me off. But let's talk Champions League. Uh, something that's not new, Leander, is uh, is Barcelona taking down Manchester City at the Etihad. That happened yesterday. Two goals from Luis Suarez, 2-1 win for Barcelona. Um, you know, I, I realize that Yaya Torre wasn't in the lineup, and as much as I love Yaya, that should not be an excuse at this level for Manchester City, should it?
3: It shouldn't, and it it certainly shouldn't be an excuse for for the level to which, I mean, City was just kind of emasculated, as Ray Hudson likes to say, in in the first half. I mean, you know, this Barca team is not supposed to be in one of its great seasons, in one of its all-time vintage seasons, right? I mean, under Luis Luis Enrique... um, their new manager, you know, there seems to have been a little bit of friction. He's changed up the style again a little bit, although they were very much in the tiki-taka mode yesterday, but he's gone a bit more direct at times. Um, they've already lost four league games this season, which which is a lot for them by, by February. Um, and they had just lost on the weekend to Malaga. And they just so dominated Manchester City in the first half that, you know, I, I think it spoke volumes for both teams First of all, that that Barca is still a really, really, really good team, um, even if they let their foot off the accelerator in the second half. But also that this Manchester City, and and I wrote this in my uh, my Yahoo column, um, after you know almost a, a billion dollars has been spent on this club, and they're they're more than half a decade now into this project of turning Manchester City into a super club, and they really still can't compete in Europe. Yes, they're without Yaya Toure, and when I say compete, I mean obviously in the latter stages of the Champions League where, where the prizes are won. Um, yes, so they were without Toure, but a team with, with that much uh, by way of resources, with, with so many great players who can just buy anyone they want pretty much, um, really should be able to, to accommodate his, his loss. So it's it's just sort of boggling that, uh, that that they played so badly in the
0: first half. Here's a question: I mean, obviously Chelsea is the is sort of the model for what Manchester Manchester City wants to become. They get an, an, a a very rich owner and a guy who's going to dump a lot of money into the club. Um, they're looking for not only Premier League success, domestic success, but Champions League success. And and for whatever reason, Chelsea has done something that Manchester City can't. Have, have times just changed enough? that it makes it more difficult for Man City? Is it, is it a luck of the draw situation? Obviously, going up against Barcelona two years in a row doesn't help matters.
3: Well, typically, when you've looked at teams that have sort of been bought together in the way that both Chelsea and Manchester City um, had been, it usually takes two, three, four years to sort of coalesce and come together in Europe. That's what you tend to see. I mean, these teams tend to dominate domestically pretty quickly, but you can't really buy your way to success in Europe because there's too many other rich teams, right? So it, it takes a little while to come together. Chelsea actually is is sort of the outlier to that rule mm-hmm. because they sort of very quickly on started getting the Champions League semi-finals and they got to a final pretty early. Um, but you you notice there that that. City has been sort of the opposite. I mean, they've, they've really made no inroads. Even Paris Saint-Germain has done a lot better in a, in a much shorter time span with a team that's been bought together. But now in four seasons, uh, assuming that Manchester City doesn't come back from this in Barcelona, and I don't expect them to, they'll have had four Champions League campaigns, with, which granted were their first four times uh, qualifying for the tournament, but they'll have been knocked out in the group stage twice and in the round of 16 twice. That's just a really, really poor return. So I think they have some questions to ask themselves. It, it doesn't seem to me like they don't have the players to do it. Um, Roberto Mancini famously is, is, has had mixed results in Europe and, and has been fired for that reason from several jobs at Inter Milan and uh, and I think at Manchester City. Um, but you know, in Pellegrini, they, they've they've got a good coach who who should be able to compete with them, who has competed in Europe with much smaller teams. So that something is wrong there. Something is not quite working. And, and I don't think anybody can quite figure out what it is.
0: Let me flip it back to Barcelona for a second. You mentioned Luis Enrique comes in. There's some tension. There's some, uh, uh, some disagreement, perhaps, in the way that he's, he, he wants the team to play. And we know Tiki Taka is, is just embedded into the DNA of, of so many of those players, although we're starting to see a generational shift. I mean, how long does Iniesta have? Uh, and he, he maybe is uh, is putting in some, some other wrinkles to this team. It used to be that Barcelona didn't have a plan B, mostly because they didn't need a plan B. Do you imagine that they, they actually have one now? Or And I've even seen this out there, Leander, that perhaps this Barcelona team may even be better than those, but the way that they play is, is different enough that it's harder to see that dominance.
3: Well, I, I think it started with Tata Martino, who who took over last year after you had Pep Guardiola and and um and his uh and and his successor, whose name escapes me for some reason, um who who were these tiki taki ideologues?
0: That was Tito, and, by the way. And, and
3: what, sorry, what, what? was
0: it Tito Villanova who took over for a little while?
3: Yes, yes, yes. thank you. Um, <laughs> um, so those guys were sort of tiki taki ideologues, and then Tata Mart- Martino came, and he sort of made them a little bit more, uh, flexible, you know, he, he sometimes liked to play a little bit more direct. And I think Luis Enrique, who while a, a, um, an alumnus of Barcelona in, in some of its great days, um, had also played for Real Madrid and, and isn't sort of someone who was always with the club and who was brought up with its philosophy, has I think um taken that a little bit further, where especially with a guy like Luis Suarez, he he plays a little bit more direct sometimes and um and has tinkered a little bit with the formation every now and again. So I think they are a little bit more flexible. But at the same time, like you say, you know, we haven't seen as much of Xavi this season. Maybe Andres Iniesta has has fewer good days ahead of him than behind him. Um so I, I think that golden generation of guys who were just born and raised to play that system is going. So I think it's practical and sensible for Barcelona to sort of be exploring other ways to win mm-hmm. soccer games.
0: Well, And you have, I mean, again, that three-headed monster that they have in, in Neymar, Suarez, and Messi. You know, th- there are many ways for those guys to beat teams almost by themselves. I'm not sure that that's what we saw yesterday. I mean, certainly it, it, it's the entire team um, that took apart Manchester City. But but when you have you know trans uh, you know transcendent talent, goal scoring talent like those guys, it was funny. We're watching the I'm watching the the broadcast uh, of that game, and at one point, whoever the commentator was says here in England. Uh, They're giving Suarez a bit of stick for not scoring as much in Spain. And then he just proceeds to score 30 seconds (laughs) later and scores a second. And it just reminds you how much talent is actually there.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, that that team is so loaded. And I think that's something that maybe the the English TV announcers and, and the English press as a whole hasn't quite wrapped its head around. Just how much deeper a lot of big Spanish clubs are now than the teams from England. And we're seeing that reflected. And we can have sort of a larger discussion over you know the the premier league brand and and whether it it really is a strong league as it's advertised to be as it thinks it is but uh, you you could see there that and and that's that that was my real takeaway like i said before that you know barcelona in in what for them is something of a down year is is still a a, a much better team than a title contender in England.
0: Let's switch over to the other match yesterday. Dortmund visiting uh, Juventus in Turin. Uh, A 2-1 win for Juventus. Um, Probably the bare minimum for them at home. I mean, look, I I know Dortmund's struggles sort of dominate the headlines when they're playing in the Bundesliga, but we know they've they've been very good in the Champions League. They know how to win in this tournament. And while Juventus may have actually had an experience advantage uh, in the Champions League overall... Certainly, Klopp's team came to play.
3: Yeah, no, it's it was really interesting. I thought because, like you say, Juve won the game, and and Dortmund had sort of been cruising in the Champions League so far this season. For for all their struggles domestically in the Bundesliga, they were in last place at one point after the winter break. Um, they're actually now starting to turn it around. They've won three games in a row, I believe, and you know that you know they're not going to get relegated. Let's be honest; they'll they they probably aren't going to go into Europe next year. Unless they somehow win the Champions League, but um, they, they are turning it around domestically. And, and just as that's happening, it seems now that their European campaign is in a little bit of trouble. Because I, I think Juventus—it was a tight game, but I think Juventus earned the win. Um, they have that lead now, going going back to uh, going back to Dortmund. Um, it, that, that was a really fun game, by the way. I mm-hmm. watched it after the uh, the, the City Chelsea game, and it was really worth the time. So if if any listeners haven't watched it yet and have it on
0: their DVR, I recommend it. Well, a fun game, but but sort of marked by some simple mistakes that that led to goals.
3: Yeah, that that was interesting. I mean, on on Juve's first goal, Roman Weidenfeller. Weidenfeller, I don't I don't know how you pronounce it. I probably should, since <laughs> some am Dutch. But um, he he didn't cover himself on, in glory and sort of spilled the ball too easily in front of him. That Tevez sort of bundled home, although the defender may have had something to do with it. And then on Dortmund's goal, I think it was Chiellini, uh, the the Juve defender slipped and sort of sent in Marcus Royce uh, uncontested, Marco Royce, and uh, and he scored pretty easily. So two of three goals were uh, were sort of the result of blunders. But other than that, it, it was a good game.
0: As we set up for uh, for next week's for the return legs in the in these two ties. Um. Obviously, Barcelona with a, with a big advantage over Manchester City. It, it, as you said, very difficult to see Manchester City coming back and uh, turning that around. Um. There. Um. In Barcelona's home stadium. Meanwhile, you know, again, it's not that it, it's not that Juve doesn't have an advantage here, but but you can easily see Dortmund figuring out a way uh, to turn that tie around and, and and advance to the semi or to the quarterfinals. Excuse me.
3: I think so. I mean, Dortmund is still a team with a tremendous amount of depth, especially in midfield, and, and a side where, they, like you say, they do have that European experience, and they have such a home advantage. Um, Sam Borden just wrote a great story about in the New York Times about uh, their home support, and, and that's, that's something that, that they've always been able to harness, especially in Europe. So I don't think they're out of this by any means, and I think their season ultimately is not yet lost. Which is kind of amazing when a side like Dortmund is has been in last place mm. in the in the Bundesliga.
0: Looking ahead to today's matches, a couple of things. Um, you know, Arsenal visiting Mon, or sorry, Arsenal hosting Monaco, and and you know, Arsene Wenger and his history at Monaco is sort of the subtext to this. Uh, there's no bearing on the match necessarily. Um, we know what Arsenal can do and how well they can play typically, at, especially at home. Monaco. You know, despite selling off their big pieces, has managed to stay very competitive in Ligue 1 and to to get this far in the Champions League. What accounts for their success, and what do they need to do against Arsenal?
3: Well, I think Monaco has fallen off a bit. I mean, and they did sell those, they did get rid of those big pieces in James Rodriguez and uh, and Falcao, who went to uh, to Manchester United. I mean, they sit in fourth place at the moment. Uh, there's a pretty big gap between them and Marseille in, in third place, of seven points. Although they have been in a good run of form, they've, they've won. Uh, they've only lost one game recently, um, in, a, in a pretty long while. But the, they are, I think, missing that, uh, that that sort of star power, those difference makers that they had. Um, and I think for Monaco, a real problem this season has been scoring goals, which is kind of understandable when you lose James Rodriguez and, and Falcao. Um, if you sort of look at their recent run of games. It's one nothing in the in the the league. Oh, one nothing, one nothing, zero 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 one one zero 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 one one zero, etc. <laughs>
0: is this binary code or Monaco's score scoreline? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when you look at their um, at
3: the Champions League, they actually won their group, Group C, while scoring just four goals right. in six games, yeah. um, which is pretty extraordinary. They also only conceded one. But this is going to be a problem at some point when you when you get into the uh, into the knockout stages, and especially against a team like Arsenal. That's that's you know a, a team that's capable of scoring a few.
0: The other matchup is uh, Bayer Leverkusen at, at Atletico Atletico Madrid. Um, Atletico, obviously, they've dropped off the pace a bit. They had they had a kind of a crushing loss that that's put them behind in in. Um in the La Liga race, that maybe allows them to focus more on this? I mean, how do you think Simeone handles this particular leg? Well,
3: they, they like you say, they, they're a little bit off the pace in, in La Liga. They're seven points behind Real now and uh, and three points behind Barca. So, you know, th- that's going to be pretty tough for them. Although, you know, if those other two sides keep dropping points against smaller teams, who knows what can happen? But... um I think that ultimately, when you look at Bayer Leverkusen, that, that's a team that never quite seems to live up to expectations. They're not having the kind of season that they were hoping to in the Bundesliga. They are in uh, sixth place now. They're they're not really in contention. So I think this should be reasonably reasonably straightforward for Atletico Madrid. Um, they do have the away leg for at first, you know knowing how good Atletico is on, on set pieces mm-hmm. and knowing how good they are at home when they need to preserve a result. Uh, I think they take a goal or two here and then just lock things up at home. And yeah. and I, I think it'll just be sort of routine for them.
0: Interesting. Leander Schellackens, follow him on Twitter. Leander Alphabet is the handle. Uh, Leander has a uh, an, an American Soccer Now piece on the question of switching the MLS schedule. I don't have time to get into it now, Leander, but I would love to talk to, talk to you about it in the near future so let's book that right now let's schedule that and get you in to talk some mls let's do it all right let's take a break when we come back we're going to grab peter wilt president of indy 11 we'll talk about the stadium effort there in indianapolis this is soccer morning brought to you by worldsoccertalk.com don't be don't go anywhere excuse me be right back
2: Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis.
0: Here we go back on Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. I am happy to be joined on the telephone by Peter Wilt, president of Indy 11. I believe he's live at the Indiana State House right now. Hi, Peter. Good morning, Jason. Great to be with you. And, yes, I'm uh, live at the State House where we're
1: anxiously awaiting the uh, House of Representatives of the state of Indiana to vote on bill number 1273. That would be our stadium bill.
0: That is uh, is—it's it, very exciting. I didn't realize it was happening today. Everything I read in preparations for this interview just later this week. So I guess we're getting a, a live a report here. Um, I guess, you know, can can you briefly walk us through the process to, to how you got where you guys are right now waiting for the House to, to vote on the bill?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, we submitted this bill uh, last year and it made its way through the House to the Senate before they uh, turned it down and asked us to come back this year when they had a longer session. And so this year, it made its way through the Ways and Means Committee with a 20-3 to 3 approval. And uh, today, we uh, are cautiously optimistic on another approval in the full House. If that happens, it will go to the Senate floor next week and will be alive at least until, the, uh, until April. And if it gets uh, approval through both Houses, then uh, we will have the enabling action. That will allow us to work with the city uh, to uh, come up with the financing for the stadium. So, uh, even then, we won't be all the way through, but we're making great progress, and we are cautiously optimistic about having a world-class stadium here in Indianapolis that we open for the 2017 season.
0: Now, I know that um, the entire American soccer community has seen the the renderings of a potential ND11 stadium. They look fantastic. I have to ask, and, and I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm not from Indian, Indianapolis. I've never actually visited the city. I'd like to change that. Uh, but in terms of geography and and where this might be located, what are the options? Uh, we have not um, secured a specific site yet, but we are looking at three to four different sites that are all
1: uh, within uh, a mile and a half of this circle, uh, the downtown Indianapolis area. Uh, the, the preferred site is one. Uh, that I think people will like. It's uh, uh, going to be downtown close to plenty of attractions and uh, and I think that's a key to the stadium, it's a location. And Indianapolis has made its mark, its rebirth in the last 20 years based on its sports facilities being downtown. Uh, Lucas Oil Stadium, Bankers Life Fieldhouse where the Pacers play and also Victory Field where the Triple A baseball team plays are all downtown and it's an important part of making downtown Indianapolis alive uh, most nights of the year with sports and entertainment.
0: As this, um, is this stadium, and maybe I'll ask you some financing questions, you sort of uh, broached those a little bit, and, and those are always hot topic uh, points of contention when it comes to stadiums, but is this going to be, are we talking multi-use, soccer specific, are there going to be concerts, what, what other uses might Indianapolis get out of this building?
1: No, I like the term soccer centric, uh but it is absolutely uh, multi-use. So it's designed specifically for soccer, uh but it would also be utilized uh, for uh, other field sports such as field hockey and uh lacrosse and since the NCAA is uh their offices are located just down the street from uh downtown Indianapolis, uh we have uh pretty good assurances that there would be a number of NCAA championship events here. It's also suitable for concerts, uh and other entertainment events. But soccer would be the big thing. Obviously the eleven would be the main tenant. Uh, we would likely secure an NWSL team, a professional women's team, mm. uh, to play here as early as 2017 wow. as well.
0: That, that that's fantastic to hear. Uh, you know, again, to to get not to be too wonkish about the details and the financing, um, but uh, and I don't have a full grasp of of actually how the stadium would be financed. But I did read this morning that there was an amendment to the bill, and and part of that was a, a guarantee on the debt by by the owner of Indy Eleven. Has that changed anything for the organization?
1: Well, there was about 10 amendments added to the bill in the last couple of days, so we're still digesting much of it, and uh, there will be conversations ongoing as the bill advances, hopefully to the Senate, uh, that will uh, either add, remove, or tweak some of the amendments, including that one.
0: In, in, in terms of the commitment of the city to soccer and, and what this, uh, what this means in terms of public dollars. Again, these are, high, these are highly contentious questions. Um, you know, David Beckham can't get anything done in Miami and we're seeing New York City struggle. Is this going to be something where, um, the, the city is, is comfortable helping the team out for, uh, you know, uh, you scratch our back, we scratch yours. Is there, what, what does this, what does this deal look like from a public's per- perspective? Uh, This
1: is very different than what I think uh, taxpayers generally think of in terms of publicly-subsidized stadium. This is not publicly-subsidized in terms of real tax dollars going to it. It's user fees. Uh, It's supported by two different uh, geographic entities, the stadium and then a new hotel that our owner is planning to develop, uh, also downtown. So if you don't go to the stadium or you don't, you're not a visitor that stays at the hotel, you're not paying for the stadium in any way. It would be a 10% uh, fee or tax on all the tickets, not just for the 11 games, but for all events there. It would be captured sales and income taxes from the stadium, uh, and uh, captured taxes from the owner's hotel. And that's about as fair a deal as I've ever seen in terms of uh, any publicly financed uh sports venue because if you don't use it it's a voluntary tax if you don't want to uh go to a game or you don't want to pay the tax don't go to the
0: game i i do believe that uh, orlando has something similar to this again i'm no, no expert I'm, I'm not writing for uh, websites who are looking into stadium deals but it, it, that's at least comforting from the from the perspective is uh, we all want to make sure that the public dollars are, are being used properly and if this is a uh, uh, a use tax, then, then that's a good thing. Now, what, do, what would the stadium mean for Indy 11 as an organization? How much of a difference does it make to be playing in a venue you're leasing that is not pr- particularly built for you but may do the job into a soccer-centric stadium?
1: It, 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 I cannot overemphasize how important it is to the future of the team. I mean, and it's two basic impacts. One is just in sheer capacity. You now we sold out every home game last year, 10,400 plus, and we would have sold a lot more if we had a lot more seats. This will give us another 8,000 seats uh, plus standing room and actually uh, room for temporary seating beyond that. So just in pure capacity, it will be a tremendous lift. Uh, secondly, it will create a number of uh, increased revenue streams, certainly more tickets, obviously, and there will be more uh, amenities, so we can charge more for the higher-end tickets. We can sell more sponsorship. Uh, retain more food and beverage, uh, sell more merchandise, and all that money will be plowed back into the, the team and the organization. We can increase our staff size, we can uh, pay more money for players, we can pay more money for advertising and marketing, and it will have a ripple effect that will make uh, Indy 11 one of the bar key soccer teams in the country.
0: Now, Peter, uh, I hate to do this, but in, in, in terms of your experience with Chicago and the things that happened with that stadium in Bridgeview, does that have any impact on how you're going about this process? Is there any question as to that stadium maybe following you to Indianapolis?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of uh, uh, learning lessons from, uh, from Bridgeview. The number one uh, lesson is location. The second lesson is location, and the third lesson is location. It's like the three most important things in real estate. Um, uh, Certainly a a, a stadium downtown uh, is going to be more effective than a stadium built 12 miles away from downtown. In Indianapolis' perspective, that would put it in the western suburb of Avon, and I think no one uh, in Marion County, Indiana, would suggest uh, building a stadium in, in Avon. So location is absolutely one of them. And I think uh, having some participation from ownership uh, as far as a backstop is important as well. And um, here in uh, Indianapolis, our owner is stepping up and saying, I'll build this hotel and uh, capture the uh, uh, some of the existing taxes and use that as a backstop. I mean, the consultants are saying that their projections on the stadium alone will cover the debt service. The hotel is a, a waterfall, a backstop. So if there is a shortfall, then the hotel revenue will, will cover it. So I, I think that's a creative and um, benevolent uh, backstop and uh, attack to the, the, the question of who will pay for this.
0: If you if if this all comes to fruition, Peter, and and the stadium is built, uh, and you remain, uh, the team remains in NASL, and I may come back to that in a second. But if that if that ends up being the the case, and you're able to sell it out, I mean that puts you in the the top echelon, the very top of NASL, and certainly competing with MLS teams in terms of attendance. Is that is that something that you believe is reasonably achievable, uh, considering again, if if the team stays in NASL, there's that you know, there is a perception that it's not quite the top level. Absolutely. It's possible
1: for, uh, Indy 11 to, uh, compete on and off the field with the best teams in North America. Uh, that's what the stadium is about. It gives Indy 11 the potential to compete with any MLS team, any Mexican league team, uh, any team in North America, because the revenues will no longer be restrained. Uh, and in, North American Soccer League, as you know, there is no uh, salary uh, cap. So with additional revenue streams, w- uh, we'll reinvest in the players and provide uh, a product on the field that will be competitive with any other team in this country or in Canada.
0: Uh, this, is a, this is a requisite question when it comes to teams that are playing below MLS, Peter. And, and you guys have had fantastic success and sold a lot of tickets and got a lot of buzz in Indianapolis uh, is, there a, is there an intention to, to perhaps uh, ask him MLS for entry in a couple of years?
1: You know, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. and a beautiful uh, sh- uh, building right now with a, a beautiful ceiling and stained glass, but there's no, no crystal balls here, so uh, I don't know. The intention is to uh, be a first-division standard team we like the NASL. We're bullish on it. This is a very good league that's getting better every year. Our intention is to stay in this league and hopefully develop and grow in the standards with other uh, similar teams like uh, San Antonio, the New York Cosmos, uh, Tampa Bay, Jacksonville. Their new team are going to be fantastic, Minnesota, and, and others. I, this is a very good league, and it's growing.
0: Speaking to, uh, before, I, before I let you go, speaking just, just to this particular season, because this stadium's not getting built in time for 2015, obviously, what's your, what's your outlook? What's the, where's the season tickets sitting? Uh, what, uh, what kind of goals does any 11 have in 2015?
1: Well, from a business standpoint, it's easy. Uh, repeat what we did the first year. Let's sell out every ticket to every game, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident we can do that. Uh, on the field, uh, we finished last year with a five-game undefeated streak. We retained all the players we wanted to retain, and we brought in some uh, very good new players. I'm excited about signing uh, Victor Pineda and Marco Franco, who we had on loan last year from the fire, Uh, bringing in um, Dragan Stoikov, a Macedonian midfielder uh, who had been on trial with the the Galaxy last year. Uh, uh, Wojcik, besides being one of my favorite names of all time, as a young forward, I think it's going to help us. We have an international forward that we're going to announce uh, in the next uh, week or so that will also add to our strength. Adding Greg Janicki and all-league defender from San Antonio really strengthens our back line, getting Corey Miller back, same thing. Uh, the team is going to be competitive on the field. The rest of the league is getting better as well. That's uh, my only concern. If, uh, I, if this team were competing in the league from last year, I'd be very confident we would be competing for the championship. But I'm just not sure how much better all the other teams got
0: Peter, I asked Bill Peterson about this when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and he demurred. he said, "Hey, we want everybody to be playing soccer, and we don't want any work stoppages but I got to get your thoughts and ask you directly what an MLs uh, strike or, or work stoppage might uh, might do uh, not only to you know American soccer on the whole that's not a good thing, but do, does it have any impact on an ASL is there anything specific I, I don't even necessarily mean good impact it just in general, what do you, how do you view a work stoppage? I think from a local standpoint, in Indiana, it has almost no impact.
1: I don't know that the market is, unfortunately, that aware of what's going on in MLS or that there is a potential work stoppage. So in that regard, I don't think it has any impact. Uh, from a, a playing standpoint, it has no impact. I was talking to Jeff Carlisle about this the other day. Uh, we, we won't take any players on loan from MLS teams just because there may be a work stoppage. Um, you know, we'll obviously keep looking at taking players on loan if it makes sense for both parties on a normal basis. As far as the national scope and how it's viewed, I mean, I'm sure there would be some sort of um, effect on, on MLS and on the sport in general, uh, not on NASL. I don't think there's going to be a, a real impact there. Uh, but even if there is a, a negative impact on MLS, it's a short term. Uh, situation. I really think three months from now, four months from now, uh, once, once everything is resolved, hopefully within a couple of weeks, uh, that it'll be behind us and it will have uh, very little, if any, negative effects.
0: Uh, Peter, best of luck on the vote today. When will you know? In the next 30 minutes. Alright, well I'll let you go so you can get your seat and uh, get, get uh, ready for that big vote. I appreciate the time. Again, best of luck on the stadium. and Hopefully we'll be able to talk to you Uh, You know, there's other hurdles involved, but maybe we'll be able to talk to you when everything's done.
1: Great, thanks as always, Jason. Enjoy your show. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Peter. Peter Wilt from Indy Eleven joining us from the Indiana State House, where he awaits a vote on the stadium financing bill for Indy Eleven. Should be big. uh, Should be you know big news either way for that club there in Indiana. Let's take a break. We've had some technical issues. We'll try to fix those. It's Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. (laughs) Okay, we're live. I I finished up with Peter Wilt uh, in light of some technical issues. So if we're back on the air. Let's do this. Let me reset. We'll go ahead. Actually, let, you know what? Whatever. We'll we'll do this right now. No problem. Phone line's open, 347-756-6276. Again, we let Peter go. He's got that vote in about half an hour. You can go back and listen to the entire interview with Peter Wilt via the podcast, which you can find. at World Soccer Talk and various other places should be fine. No quality. No, no dropping there just dropping on our live stream. So if you want to jump in on uh, on the stadium issue in Indianapolis, uh, certainly on the Champions League, looking ahead to today's game, uh, t- today's two games, Arsenal hosting Monaco, uh, Bayer Leverkusen hosting Atletico Madrid, do that. We can talk about some other things I have um, on a list here. One thing that was teased a bit over at World Soccer Talk was this, this interview with Stefan Szymanski, at Hudson River Blue, if you don't know, Hudson River Blue is the SB Nation blog for NYCFC. Sam Dunn has this piece uh, in which he interviews Stefan Szymanski, who wrote Soccernomics. is famous in, uh, in soccer circles for his analysis of why teams win and various other elements of the game. Essentially, as far as I'm aware, and I know this is a simple way to say it, but as far as I'm aware, Steph, Stefan Szymanski's philosophy is that teams, the teams that win do so because they spend more money. Now, again, there may be some other elements involved, a wrinkle here or there, a caveat to that statement. But as far as I can tell, flat out, his philosophy, what his, what his research has shown, is that the best teams spend the most money. That there's a direct correlation between how much money you spend on your player salaries and how much you win. And it, it makes sense, logical. I don't blame him for doing the research to find this out. But I think a lot of us have made that assumption. The more money you spend, the more games you win. This interview with Stefan Szymanski uh, specifically addresses MLS. It's an MLS blog. They ask about MLS. The question is, what do you think of the economics of MLS? He says he's skeptical of the MLS model. Okay, fair enough. He says he understands single entity. He knows how much they spend and where the re- most of the revenue comes from. Don't know the exact figures for the accounting data because, of course, we don't have that. MLS doesn't release that. But he's skeptical about the model. Here's the money quote. In a nutshell, I think it's minor league soccer, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with it as minor league soccer, but it would never be major league soccer, as I understood and understand the term. That goes into why this will never be major league soccer, and essentially it comes down to money. That in order to be quote unquote major league soccer, each team will need to spend up to 50, from 50 to 100 million dollars in player salaries. Every single team, which is clearly a, an incredible increase over what they're spending now. Are we ever going to get to a level where MLS is spending 50 to 100 million dollars per team on salaries? Maybe, but you know what? By then, the biggest clubs in Europe will be spending $300 million on salaries, $400 million, $500 million on salaries. So in comparison, MLS will still be way behind the curve. But it's neither here nor there. Because again, I'm, gonna, I'm I, it's not that I think MLS is a great league of immense quality that can compete with Europe. That's not the issue here. We know MLS is not the Premier League. It's not the Bundesliga. It's not La Liga. Those qu- issues of quality established. But to call it minor league soccer and to suggest some of the possibilities that he throws out here in this interview, I think are, are, are a little bit beyond the pale. Within the United States, there is there are three professional soccer leagues. When MLS started, there was no top-level, solid, well-financed professional soccer league. That's that's the whole MLS was meant to fill. Now I don't I don't like the name Major League Soccer. I never have, never have liked the name Major League Soccer, and yet to cut them down and to say it's minor league soccer. Yes, compared to the Premier League, I suppose you could look at it that way. But it's it seems pedantic and turlish. I'm using words here. To call it minor league soccer, when within the context of the United States, it certainly is the most major soccer we've got. Now, here's the problem with that, and Stefan goes into this issue. It's a global market. We live in a world where people can watch soccer from around the globe. If you're willing to adjust your sleep schedule, you can watch any of the top three or four leagues in Europe. Which is where most of the great players play, which is where they're spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on salary at the top end of those leagues. So MLS does not exist in a bubble, in a vacuum. it's not It's not competing just with its, uh, with other sports here for viewers of its games. It's competing with those other leagues, or at least nominally competing with those other leagues depending on how the schedule breaks out again. Certainly, you have to convince somebody who is predisposed to English football or Spanish football or German football that MLS is worth their time. Now, for me, and I know that not everybody thinks this way, but for me, I can see that the differences in quality don't necessarily mean a deficit in entertainment. Then I care about MLS because I'm American and it's my league and it's happening in my backyard. And if I want to go to a game, I can get in my car and I can drive an hour and I can be at the game. Can't do that with Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. But maybe that doesn't hold any sway anymore. (laughs) So here's what Stefan suggests. He either suggests opening up the entire thing, getting rid of single entity, or if you do single entity, at least let teams spend as much as they want. So getting rid of the Sally cap at the very least, just just throw the doors wide open, let owners spend whatever they want, install promotion and relegation, okay, and just be like everybody else. If you want to ever get to where MLS says it wants to get, because Stefan Szymanski believes that's impossible. Under the current model. I'm I'm sort of with him on that. That MLS is not going to get to be one of the top five leagues in the world. Or whatever Don Garber wants it to be. Under the current model. There certainly needs to be some change. Now nobody in MLS. Is going to spend $100 million on salaries right now. Because you're not making enough. Uh, Stefan says that, that owners are putting short term profits over the growth of the league. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good question of whether or not everybody's making money. But certainly you can't have a league without owners willing to invest in the league. So we have a cart-before-the-horse situation here. The other thing that Stefan says, well, if you're not going to open it up, you're not going to install ProRel, you're not going to let owners spend as much as they want, then just go ahead and partner up with European clubs and be minor league outposts. Now I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that, and he sort of takes a shot. Well, and of course they want their uh, they want their independence, pride. Oh, but there's probably some money to be made in providing a competitive league structure, which major European teams could use. Oh, Obviously MLS and its owners would lose control of the structure, but they're sitting on a structure that isn't going to work anyway. That isn't worth anything. Wow, uh, I I think you I think you sign the death warrant of MLS over the long term if you go strictly minor league model. Robert from L.A., what's up?
2: Hey, Jason, how's it going?
0: Oh, man, I'm worked up. What's going on?
2: Hey, I just want to ask you, I don't know if you heard this in Fox. Uh, uh, yesterday uh, on Fox, uh, Warren Barnes said about, you know, with the World Cup pro- possibly going to uh, winter, saying that it may be good for the European players because they've only played half a season. But at the same time, he's also said that the U.S. players have struggled because they've only played half a season, so I just don't like him talking from both sides of the mouth, and just, <laughs> I, I understand he, what he has to do, but. Well, because okay, he look. said, like, what he, uh, what as soon as did... the European players play a full league, and they, as soon as they come on their national team shirts, the fatigue goes away instantly, but now he's saying the complete opposite. I just huh. don't like the role reversal.
0: Well, look, we we always hear when the World Cup comes around that all of those players who have played a full season in Europe leading into that tournament are tired, and, oh, man, it's got to be tough, and oh, fatigue is a factor when we get to to World Cup time. It'll be nice to have that argument about whether or not MLS players are fatigued when they get to World Cup time in 2022. I mean, I still don't know what the league is going to do about that. We may not hear for a couple of years what they're going to do about that year, but, again, playoffs happen in November. MLS Cup final happens right now. Happens in the beginning of of December. Excuse me. So I don't know if they're going to adjust the schedule or uh, take away some games. I mean, by that time we could have a forty team league. Who knows? Probably not. But we could have at least you know twenty four, twenty five, twenty six teams in this league. And I don't know what that would necessarily mean for the schedule. So I, I I don't I don't look. Uh, I think there is some psychological element to putting on the shirt and some of that fatigue going away. But there is also a concern that playing a long season ahead of a World Cup can be a problem. I, I, I see what you're getting at. I'm not going to have any particular criticism of Warren Barton right now, though. Uh,
2: all right. Uh, well, thanks for my call. Appreciate uh,
0: it. Take care. Uh, Robert in L.A. there. We got, missed a couple of calls. If you want to get in, 347-756-6276. You can talk about this Stefan Szymanski interview if you like. And again, I'm, I'm probably getting worked up over nothing. I mean, the, ultimately, the man does not have any control over anything. And his his ideas are not sacrosanct he's got you know he's got his thoughts on how MLS is limiting itself and I I don't know that there are a lot of MLS fans who wouldn't agree with him on that level that MLS is limiting itself that the owners do need to open up those those pocketbooks just a little bit more that what what's sneaking out right now is not nearly enough to get them where they want to go but maybe the question is do we need to get there Is is it necessary, 100% necessary for MLS to become a top five league? Or is it just, let's set those goalposts so we have something to aspire to? If you're an MLS fan and you have a team and you have invested your emotional energy and your money and your time into that team, are you going to stop caring about that team come 2022 when MLS isn't on par with the top five leagues in the world? sure as I hope not. be a disaster. Three four seven seven five six six two seven six. Alex X eighty five. Szymanski is very nearsighted. European model unsustainable, and does it do anything other than ossify a one 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 or two top teams like like Spain? It's a good question. He does address parity. It's another portion of this interview. He addresses parity, and that MLS owners are married to parity and shouldn't be, and that this is causing problems. His statement is, no one cares about competitive balance. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know how many people we would have to poll to find out. But I think if you asked MLS fans around the country, if they care about competitive balance, they'd probably say yes. It's nice to know, unless you're an LA Galaxy fan, unless you're an NYCFC fan, And you know that your owner can throw money in a problem for the foreseeable future. Unless you're Seattle. Don't you want a chance to win pretty much every year? Don't you want your team to be competitive on some level? Don't you want the opportunity to go support a winner? 713, you're
2: on the air. Hi, this is Kyle from
0: Houston. What's going on, Kyle? So, I
1: just thought point out about the european
0: yeah go ahead
1: Uh,
0: is this the same
1: european model that we're supposed to aspire to that has parma and such trouble and has left i I
0: I think it'd be it it, it, it would be wrong to paint with a broad brush necessarily kyle individual incompetence led to what happened at portsmouth it led to what happened at parma but you are correct in the general sense that because of the way European soccer traditionally works, <laughs> it's, there's less of a net. Let's say it that way. There's, there's less of a net for those clubs, especially the smaller ones operating on the margins, than there is for MLS clubs. Now, TOS USA went away. We know that we took, it took rank incompetence on the part of Jorge Vergara to get to that point. But everybody else, and we folded two teams in, in Florida. These, thing, these things are all black marks against the league, for what it's worth. But I will maintain that the most important thing that MLS can do is just keep going. That the teams just need to keep going. That eventually you'll get where you want to go. That hopefully, over the long enough timeline, more and more fans come to watch the game on television. More and more fans are buying tickets. More players are coming through the academies. And the more money that goes in the system, the better the teams will be. I don't think it's happening by 2022, but that's not going to keep me from watching MLS. You got anything else, Kyle?
1: Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. I look at this as the whole, uh what USSF did back in the, the late 90s, I believe, where they wanted to win the World Cup by 2010. It was a worthy goal. They looked down and said, how we're going to do it. They failed in the sense they didn't win the World Cup, but they still got better. They were better. Yes. We are better what? now I, because of that plan than I, we were after the 1998 disaster. You, That's why I look at this 2022 plan
2: with MLS. It's not necessarily we're going to achieve it, as long as we are much better off than when we started it. It was a complete
0: success. I believe that's the case. Thanks for the call, Kyle. And look, in terms of Project 2010, you know, I've seen a lot of criticism, a lot of people laughing at that idea. Look, like, you set the goal because you, you want it to be a high goal that you have to work to achieve. And the, whether or not the plan was the right plan, in retrospect, we can debate that. Certainly. It probably wasn't. It probably didn't do enough. There probably were some fundamental flaws. That's why we've got your Klinsman overhauling a system. But the idea of let's set a goal, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Seven you're on the air. How you doing, Jason? I'm, I'm good. Who's this? This is Jerry from Charlotte. What's going on, Jerry? Hey,
2: I think the problem that Major League Soccer has is that they're in a, they're in a cultural, well, they're in a country where culturally being viewed as second rate isn't allowed. Major League Baseball is the number one baseball league. Of course, football is its own, you know, thing. Nobody really plays there, but it's still the best version of it in the world. The NBA is the best version of it in the world. The Hockey League is the best version in the world. Americans are like accustomed to viewing the league and especially our own league sure. as the best league. And yeah. if you're not striving for that,
0: we kind of throw it off to the side like oh whatever yeah, no, that's look, why, I, that's, like, okay. that's why the goal you're okay. right, Jerry that's why the goal exists, and that's why yes. that's why the task that MLS has is incredibly difficult and that's why exactly that's why I'm willing to to have patience again, maybe not everybody right. is, and maybe people who watch the Premier League are never going to give MLS a chance that doesn't mean no. mls can't can't grow within within its current model or at least within, right. its, within its current uh, uh you know the current restraints on money that it has now again that's slower than anybody wants we're just impatient people we want right. owners to walk in the door and go i'm spending 50 mil right now that right. we're just not there yet and and maybe we'll never we never will be that again it doesn't mean that you can't be entertained by the game or you can't be interested in mls uh you know, you, you got a friend who says, "Oh, you watch MLS? That's terrible soccer." I watch La Liga. I watch Bundesliga. Say, like, good for you. It's fun. Who cares? It's fun. I I used to. Well, go- I think the. Go ahead. No, oh, I, I, I'm
2: sorry. I think the difference, though, is that culturally. See, what the, the problem is, is that um, for me, is that when you hear people say, "Oh, I watch La Liga," or "I watch the EPL," or "I watch the Bundesliga," they're not watching it for Levante or. Uh, Real Zaragoza right, or right. like Burnley or, you know, someone or Crystal Palace. They're sure. watching it for Chelsea and Arsenal and Manchester United. <laughs> so they're watching the top dog. And so what you have is that American fans over here are still using the same context over in Europe, they're still only wanting to watch the best team. Nobody's going to sit over there and watch Hull city versus Crystal Palace and just be like, oh, yes, this is, I love this. No, they want to watch the <laughs> best Team yeah. and so they transfer the same idea over to Europe now their fans over there They're willing to deal with their teams never having a shot at a championship never being able to win a championship That's culturally okay with them yeah. here I just don't ever see that working, and until right. and unless you give, you know, unless you're pushing to be the best, Americans won't respect you. And so MLS, like you said, is stuck between, you know, either realizing, okay, we'll never get there and having people hopefully accept that or taking a long time to get there and people being impatient. Yeah,
0: you know, look, Stephen Szymanski, I appreciate the call, man. I'm going to get going here. Stephen Szymanski obviously has his viewpoint, and there's reason for him to believe it's the correct one. But I, I think there's a disconnect culturally um, that he might not understand some of the things that are at work here in an American context, certainly when it comes to parity. And, and I'm not for enforced parity that prevents teams from becoming great over two, three, four, five seasons. But I am sort of against the idea that you let the you take the reins off and allow two or three clubs to dominate everything and therefore marginalize everybody else if look in, in a world without parity the columbus crew are not competing with the la galaxy for titles they're just not and now the galaxy have enough room within the current system to go and win as often as they do and be as good as they are and, and we see uh, to me that seems like hey, this is the right sort of balance yeah they can go be great they can go they can go win a title with yeah and again with playoffs anything is possible with playoffs that's built in parity but also the maintaining the notion that anybody can win—you you, you 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 build your team with a smart sort of plan. You have a, a possible chance to go win a title. I, I think that's—I think there's something American about that. That still speaks to soccer fans. We're, what we're talking about here is whether or not soccer fans are exceptional. Is there a soccer exceptionalism? It's not my favorite thing. All right, all fired up. Time to go. Time to wrap this one up. Thanks again. To land your Sherlackins for talking Champions League with me. Peter Wilt down at the Indiana Statehouse in Indianapolis getting ready for the big vote over their stadium bill. Uh, good chats with both of them. Again, if you missed the chat with Peter Wilt due to our technical issues, the podcast will be up just a little bit later, and you can hear the whole thing. Please go to backheel.com slash store to buy yourself a soccer morning mug. We've seen a lot of pictures out there of people rocking their soccer morning mugs. It's fantastic. We've got t-shirts over at 3nilfc.com. Excellent uh, T-shirts that you can buy to support the show. Follow us on Twitter, at Soccer Morning. Make sure you check out World Soccer Talk. For the podcast feed and a live show, I promise the technical issues, we'll, we'll we'll get those wrinkled out. We'll be back tomorrow on a Thursday. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. We'll talk to you then. Bye.
1: Stay out super late tonight Picking apples, making pies Ooh. Mm-hmm.